0: I'm your host, Alex, and welcome to the Levantini Podcast, a show about Near Eastern history, language, and culture. To learn more about the show and get in touch, you can visit our website at levantinipod.com. In this episode of the podcast, Professor Gary Rensberg came back on the show to discuss his book, How the Bible is Written. The book's a deep dive into the literary aspects of the Hebrew biblical text that sheds new light on the artistry and skill of the biblical authors. You can purchase a copy of How the Bible is Written on Amazon by following a link in the show notes. I had a great time having Professor Rensberg back on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, we're live. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me, Alex. So tell everyone where you are.
1: (laughs) I am in Jerusalem, where the Bible was written, or at least where we assume the great majority of the biblical books were written. I'm on an academic sabbatical this semester fall 2022 and it's just wonderful to be spending three and a half months here in uh, jerusalem a city very dear to my heart
0: so we have some limited time to, to cover a lot of a lot of material so i've picked out examples from from the book that stood out to me and we'll see how far we can get but obviously there's there's a lot to cover and if that approach sounds good with you we can we can dive right in
1: it sounds perfect let's do it
0: well, first, I'd like to get my bearings on starting with your hypothesis of, of when the text that you focus on in the book were composed or at least put to writing and why that seems to make sense for you.
1: Right. So one of the chapters in the book is called When Was All This Written, chapter 21. And, you know, when I say all this, as I say in the opening line to that chapter, I don't mean the entire Bible. I'm talking about the most familiar parts of the Bible. So we begin with the Torah or the Pentateuch, the five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But I want to focus mainly in that material on Genesis and some of the other narratives. Other material which is well known, including the um, life of King David embodied in the book of Samuel. But it includes Samuel, Saul, David, and then the next generation of David's sons until Solomon takes the throne at the beginning of the book of Kings. And other materials, uh, especially the book of Judges. So, familiar stories of Deborah, Gideon, Samson, etc. So, these are the great narratives which everybody knows. And my approach is that this material was written in the 10th century BCE. This is a real turning point in the history of Israel. Uh, prior to this, Israel was a loose confederation of uh, 12 tribes sharing similar customs, beliefs, practices, dietary laws, and so on. And of course, focusing mainly on, and most importantly, on the worship of the one God. But they basically held their identities to the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Ephraim, and so on, as we can tell from reading those uh, earlier biblical books. Slightly before the year 1000, Israel moves to a monarchy, and the first king is Saul, but he's more of a transitionary king. It's not clear to what extent his realm reaches to all of the 12 tribes. He doesn't have a capital. He continues to live in his home uh, city of uh, Gibeah and doesn't really have the trappings of kingship or government and bureaucracy and so on. All of that changes in the year 1000 when his son-in-law David succeeds him on the throne, captures Jerusalem, makes it the capital city, unites all the tribes, and now we have real kingship. And He has not only the title, but also the trappings of king, including royal scribes who were mentioned. And this continues, of course, in the next generation with Solomon as well. And my sense is that a new nation like this this requires a national narrative to unite all the disparate tribes uh, who had disparate origins, whether they went down to Egypt and came back, whether they were always present in the land without the Egyptian experience, whether they were part of the Sea Peoples movement, which we assume for the tribe of Dan especially, they all coalesced and amalgamated and became Israel. And you need to write a national narrative for that. And basically those scribes in the 10th century are writing two narratives. They're writing the story of uh, Samuel, Saul, David, the recent history which they knew well. And they're also writing a story uh, set in the past of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on in the book of Genesis. And there are so many shared motifs and literary themes and lexical items between using just the two books of Genesis and Samuel, that to my mind, this is all coming out of a single school of scribes, Uh, who creates the biblical material that we know best. So when I say, when was all this written? I'm looking at the 10th century BCE. And I also can justify that on linguistic evidence. The linguistic profile of those stories is early biblical Hebrew prose in contrast to what you get later on in the book of Kings, When you're dealing with 8th, 7th, 6th century kings, the linguistic profile is different and even more radically different in the exilic and post-exilic period. So that's the basic outline.
0: What are the the texts that you believe were incorporated from northern traditions that, that weren't composed in Jerusalem?
1: So those northern texts, which are composed in the northern dialect of Hebrew, what I call Israelian Hebrew, are some of those stories in the book of Judges. Because some of those individual judges, Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5, the action takes place in the Galilee and the Jezreel Valley. Ditto for Gideon. Many, if not most, of the uh, stories in the book of Judges are about these northern heroes. And they're geographically set in in the north or in Transjordan even. This is reflected in, in their dialect. Later on, when you get to the Book of Kings, I mean, actually, the Book of Kings tells us this explicitly. It says, if you want to know more more about this particular king of the kingdom of Judah, you can consult the annals of the kings of Judah. If you want to know more about this particular king of Israel, you can consult the annals of the kings of Israel. And the overall arching editor of the Book of Kings brought both of those sources together. And you can see this in the linguistic evidence as well, where the kings of Judah, material, uh, famous kings like Hezekiah, Josiah, etc, are written in what we would call that standard biblical Hebrew, Judahite Hebrew, the dialect most likely of Jerusalem, where I am at the moment. And those northern kings, Omri, Ahab, Jehu, Jeroboam, That material is, as you you read through it, you see a different, um, you know, grammatical structure and lexical items, which are different from time to time. We're not talking radical differences, Um, perhaps something like Northern American English from Southern American English or Northern uh, English from Yorkshire, British English from Yorkshire, Northumberland, which will be very different from the London dialect. So obviously all of these people can communicate with one another, but you know, if you study it closely and if you pay attention to dialectical differences, you can see this in the biblical record.
0: So we're gonna touch on this later on, but I wanna jump to it now because of of what you mentioned. But in in the the book, you reference certain stories where I think you refer to as style switching, maybe where the story is taking place outside of traditional Israel, maybe in like Aram or someplace else, and the author is purposely throwing in foreign vocabulary to better set the stage and almost almost like you would in like a screenplay is that's not what's going on with the northern text
1: yes and no i mean that is a whole other feature it's more of a literary device right than a linguistic thing but it shows you the extent to which these uh, biblical authors were able to cast their stories so if you look in the uh, torah i have three particular narratives that i focus on uh, one of them is when Abraham's servant, unnamed, in Genesis 24, goes off to Aram to procure a bride for Isaac, and of course the woman he meets at the well and brings back is Rebekah. But that whole scene is set there in Aram. Uh, then, a few chapters later, Jacob actually goes and lives in Aram with his uncle Laban, where he marries the two daughters, Rachel and Leah, in the other order, Leah Leah, and Rachel. And uh, those stories in those chapters of Genesis are cast in this different dialect. You can hear it not only when they speak to one another, when the characters speak in directly quoted speech, but even the narrator himself picks up on uh, some of these items as well, using words which we know much better from Aramaic than we know from Hebrew. You can't write the whole thing in Aramaic, otherwise it would be incomprehensible to an ancient Hebrew unless he or she was educated and knew Aramaic as well. And then the other third story in the Torah is the story of Bilam, or Balaam, the Aramean prophet who's brought to the land of Canaan by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites and famously is unable to curse them, and in fact, blesses them including the famous Matovu, HaLacha Yisrael, HaGudli, tense, so Israel, and so on. Not in that phrase, but in other places, he's using Aramaic-style language as well. So I don't think those were stories were written in the North. They were probably written, like most of the Torah, in a Judai dialect. But these writers were able to just cast the speech of these individuals. My analogy is Henry V by Shakespeare where you have a Welsh military officer and a Scottish military officer, and they're speaking, it's English. And Shakespeare, of course, is writing in the standard Southern English of either his native Stratford or now his home in London. But he was able to capture that Welsh and Scottish dialect and the Irish dialect as well just brilliantly. But of course, he was Shakespeare. He could do anything with the language. But that's what these ancient biblical authors are doing. So there's a difference between stories written in the North, which we can demonstrate for sure with the Book of Kings, and most likely for the judges who live in the North, and the stories where style switching occurs, where you have a Southern author who's using the opportunity of these Aramean scenes or Aramean characters, and therefore is able to create the language to allow you to follow the context.
0: And you you acknowledge this in one of the footnotes in the book that your theory is is not widely accepted yet because of the idea that literacy in, in Canaan or Israel wasn't that widespread yet. Has that idea been changing in the last few years? Does that recent Mount Ebal finding, whether that turns out to be real or not, support that? Well, the Mount Ebal finding
1: is something we can't really even speak to because it's there's still so little known about it, and we await some more official reports other than the uh, media reports, which we have. Although my colleague Gershon Galil of the University of Haifa, I, I trust him implicitly, and he's taking the lead on this. But that aside, we have more and more inscriptions from the 10th century or even from the 11th century than we had 20 years ago, I mean, for a long time, basically, there was the Gezer calendar, maybe one of the Arad inscriptions from the 10th century. But in the last 20 years, we now have inscriptions, and sometimes they're just ABC degrees, the alphabet written out. But we have them from Isbet Sarta and from Tel Zayit and from Khirbet uh, Ke'afa, and from Jerusalem itself from the 10th century. They're all small little things, but they show us that there's probably a sufficient literacy in the 10th century right, by this point. But that point aside, I don't think there has to be widespread literacy. All you have to do is be a human to appreciate literature. And even if only, you know, one, two or five percent of the population could actually read and write, everybody can compose a narrative. You have a professional scribe who can copy it down. I mean, there are all sorts of pre-literate societies today where the bards are able to create literature that the population at large can appreciate. I don't know what percentage of people in Somalia are literate, but Somali poetry is is, is, uh, is apparently like the rage of the country, uh, that much, unfortunately, poor and war-torn country. But Somali poetry, which has been studied by anthropologists, people know it, whether they can read or write or not. They can quote it. They can appreciate it when they go to readings. So you don't have to have literacy per se. All you need is the ability to understand the way literature operates and i think that this was absolutely true for ancient israel
0: so on that point it'd be helpful if you can talk about how in in the ancient near eastern context and certainly in in the ancient israel context how these texts were both meant to be consumed as a piece of literature that you would read but also that you would hear
1: right so the, the literature of the ancient world is consumed through what i call the oral oral process, and it's hard to say those two words in English, but oral, O-R-A-L, meaning from the mouth, and A-U-R-A-L, oral, into the ear. And that's the way people, quote-unquote, read. In a modern English-speaking world, and that's true of so many other cultures of Europe and beyond, we read silently. Print allows us to have, and even now digital, allows us to have a copy of anything we want, you can still have the traditional print book. You can have it on your e-reader. I read it on your screen, your device, whatever it is. And everybody can have a copy. It's, it's it's not a problem. And we read silently. But in antiquity, reading was done aloud. One person, assuming there was a physical text, held the text on a papyrus scroll during the biblical period, later on parchment scroll. One person held the text and read it and read it aloud. And he or she, but most likely he was a presenter or a performer who intoned the text. I don't mean merely sang or chanted it, but did all of the stuff that a stage actor does probably with nonverbal communication and facial expressions and so on in this imagined world that I like to recreate and a group of people, 20 people, 30 people, whatever, listen to it. And that's how they heard text. They didn't read silently. There's no such thing as silent reading in antiquity. So I imagine our colleague Robert Alter, UC Berkeley, retired, likes to envision the shepherds around the campfire at night when one person, you know, reads or tells the story and everybody listens in a more beautiful pastoral scene, in a more urban environment. I can imagine this happening at the city gates, and we know of such city gates in well-excavated cities like uh, Tel Don, or to this day, it's, 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 you know, 500 years ago, but you enter the old city at Jaffa Gate, you have know, the whole piazza there, plaza, where open space before you start moving into the warren of alleyways into the Christian quarter or the Armenian quarter. So I imagine that for an ancient reading as well. And for those of the listeners who know Hebrew, all I have to do is remind you of what you learned in Hebrew 101, maybe in the first or second week. And that is that the very common Hebrew verb kara, resh aleph, means both to call and to read. And how's that possible? Because reading was done aloud. So you call, you 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 speak aloud. That's what you do. You kara something. And of course, that's the same verb that gives us the Hebrew word mikra, meaning Bible, the same root in Arabic, which gives us Quran, which we translate as the reading sometimes, but it's not the reading, it's the recitation. I mean, you know this, Alex, because your Arabic is fluent and better than mine, but Quran means the recitation, it doesn't mean the reading. So when we say scripture in English, we're actually got it wrong because scripture comes from a Latin verbal root, which means to write. Uh, We need something in English, you know, the reading, but the reading is the recitation. Yes, it's all done orally. And, you know, people would have picked up on the style switching, the alliterations. I mean, everything that you have in a text, they would have been trained as readers slash really listeners Uh, Think of it like going to the theater. You know, you don't have a text in front of you. You just listen to it.
0: Is it possible that the written composition of these texts is capturing how the oral transmission of the stories had been done for for generations around that, that village or campfire context? Or is it more likely that the author just wished that the text was read and heard? Can I have it both ways?
1: Because uh, we don't know the answer to this, right? And yes, it's very possible that the final formal written text that we have, and of course, in antiquity, we have this notion of pluriformity. I mean, a thousand years later in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you still have different versions of Genesis and Samuel and so on. I mean, they're not radically different, but they're different. And we call that the pluriform text until the first or second century CE, when we get a single fixed text, which emerges hundreds of years, almost a millennium later, as the Masoretic text in the early Middle Ages. So on the one hand, yes, the final form of the text, whatever that may be, could be the crystallization of that oral reading tradition, or it could be the other way. It could be that we had a written text in different versions, and that served for the oral presentation. Uh, I don't think we can prove the point one way or the other, so I'd like to keep an open mind on that
0: question. And just trying to understand the, who the these people were that that composed it. You described different scenarios where they are different texts where they're clearly trying to elicit a response. Other ones where they're using very rare words for alliteration purposes. There are other words that were much more common. Is it is it wrong for me to read it in, in certain instances where they're almost showing off their skill? Oh, I think they definitely
1: are doing that. Absolutely, they're showing off their skill. These rare words that are employed, some of them are hapax legomena, which is the fancy academic term taken from Greek, which means once spoken. Again, there's the orality, right? Once said or once spoken, not once written. But in a corpus of literature, whether it be Homer or the Bible or whatever, you come across a word that appears only once. That's known as a hapax legomenon. And uh, there are all sorts of these examples in the Bible, as I show in the book, which are employed for alliteration, purpose of alliteration. I think these writers are definitely showing off. And, you know, the question is, what percentage of readers slash listeners would get it. Some of them, it goes over their head, but that's true of anything that we do in, in the arts and in culture. Some of us can go to the opera or the theater or a poetry reading and, or watch a film, and maybe only on the second or third viewing do you you know say, oh, wow, I didn't realize that before. So it's very possible that these are... You know, remember these writers are the scribal elite of their societies.
0: I think you you say Job a couple times in the book. That book stands out as to me as like the largest example of the author was clearly not only showing off to the audience, but showing off to his fellow scribes, it seemed like, because it's everywhere, is just going out of his way to to show his skill. The book of Job is just remarkable i mean for it's you know it's poetry it has more
1: hapax legomena either in toto or certainly per capita than any other book it's got words who, which we, whose meanings we know only because of a cognate in aramaic or arabic or akkadian uh this person has the author of job has such a rich vocabulary here i need to give a shout out to my colleague ed greenstein
0: who lives here in jerusalem yeah he's been you came on the show to discuss the book
1: oh great okay good I'll have to go back and listen to that, uh, who's been spending the last 20 years writing commentary on the book of Job. He's, he's produced his translation, which is already out with slight annotations, but his work on Job is article after article, and uh, it's been wonderful in how he's been able to show what the purpose of all this difficult language is in the book of Job. And former JTS colleague, Raymond Schindler, who's really a scholar of medieval Hebrew poetry, also wrote a book on Job, a translation and annotations on Job. And I like to quote Ray Shindland on this, who I think said it, I either paraphrase it or I'm saying it now, quoting him directly, tortuous language for a tortuous subject, right? I mean, the subject of the book Job and the problems of, of theodicy and evil in the world and why the righteous suffer. These are such difficult questions. And, you know, Ray and I think Ed agrees, uh, you know, the author used Form follows content, the author used difficult, extremely difficult language to deal with these extremely difficult topics.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So when you're looking at these texts, do you see you mentioned you know a group of scribes in Jerusalem? Do you do you get the feeling it was a group of scribes, or was it one scribe writing in, in a in one voice?
1: I think it's a group of scribes, and I would you know call attention to the analogy of Elizabethan England, which I use in the book but I've been thinking about this even more and doing doing even more research on it. I mean, Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare all by himself. He has the great impetus of his exact contemporary, Christopher Marlowe, who was several months older than Shakespeare but got started earlier and really invents modern English tragedy and the, the shadow of Marlowe is seen all over Shakespeare and then to some extent the, the third person in that trio which, who's Ben Johnson. But you know Shakespeare uses entire phrases that come right out of Marlowe and to, to some extent he is paying homage to Marlowe you know he was both friend and rival anyone who's seen, that wonderful movie Shakespeare in Love knows how beautifully the relationship between Marlowe and Shakespeare was portrayed. So I think it's more like that. This is why you will have exact phrases lifted from the book of Genesis and placed into the book of Samuel or that appear in Samuel and appear in Genesis. I don't know which one is prior. As I said, at the outset, they're probably being written at the same time. So I like to envision a small group of writers who are in close contact with one another, you know, in a a Marlowe-Shakespeare relationship. American listeners may be also aware of the other great example of this, and that is the small circle of writers in Concord, Massachusetts during the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, the Transcendentalist movement. Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and Alcott And I mean both Alcott, the father, Bronson, and Alcott, the daughter, Louisa May, are all in this very small circle, living within a few blocks of each other in a very small town. To this day, Concord is a small town. They all knew each other, and they're all neighbors, and they all read each other's work. And, you know, the shadow of Emerson, who was the great leader of the group, is to be seen everywhere in Thoreau and Hawthorne and, and so on, and the Alcotts. And the slightly further field, other writers from the same time period, Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, Horace Mann. It's just all there. So I'd like to think of these this Jerusalem circle to be something like those groups of Elizabethan London, especially amongst the playwrights, and early American small circle of writers in Concord, and slightly, you know, in, in some of them in Boston, some of them in Concord.
0: You start the book where the Torah starts in the, in the book of Genesis in the first sentence, where the author is starting things off with a bang almost. And making listeners or readers raise an eyebrow with what the author does. I'd love if you can talk about that.
1: So you know, you, you learn Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, and eventually in modern Hebrew, a noun that appears in the construct. This is true of all Semitic languages. Uh, has to be followed by another noun that appears in the construct. You know, so if you're you know, thinking in modern Hebrew, bayit is the word for house, and bait is the construct form. So you know, bait sefer, meaning house of the book, equals school. bait knesset, house of the gathering, means synagogue. Uh, And so on and so forth. And then you get, you know, in the you open up the first two words of Genesis, and it says, bereshit bara, in the beginning of. So bereshit is the construct with the preposition bet in front of it. In the beginning of. And you have to have a noun after that. And instead, there's a verb, bara. So the entire Bible begins with a grammatical conundrum. And we can point to an analogy, which appears at the beginning of the book of Hosea, tichilat diber. In the beginning of, he spoke. That is ungrammatical, right? In the beginning of, he spoke. There are other examples of this, since I'm in Jerusalem. Kiryat in Isaiah, Kiryat Hanah David. You know, the city of David camped, right? You can't you, you know, you would get marked off if you, were to, you said something like that in Hebrew 101. After a noun in the construct, which we translate in English as X of something, you have to have another noun. And yet the biblical authors occasionally don't do that, and they start with one in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. So it's in the beginning of God created the heaven and the earth. It's an ungrammatical, as it were, sentence, but it's already raising the antennae of the reader-listener. Listen up. Pay attention. On the one hand, we're we're looking at simple, basic biblical Hebrew prose, but there are going to be grammatical conundrums and rare lexical items, and so on at every turn. And those who amend the biblical text, including the vowels, will simply will typically amend it to Bereshit bara in the beginning of God's creating, uh, where you can use an infinitive form, which has. Which operates in hebrew, like a noun more than a verb. But that's playing with the text just to avoid these issues. And I eschew group emendation. I think we have to deal with real texts, difficult as they are, and understand why the writers are doing what they are doing.
0: Another thing that really interested me in that you also cover in the beginning of the book is the, the process of demythologizing um, that you break down. I'd love if you can talk about that. And then also, if that supports your hypothesis that these texts were. Composed at at a much earlier date, when concerns about Canaanite religious influence would have would have been top of mind.
1: So uh, the the whole concept of demythologizing starts with my late great teacher Cyrus Gordon, one of the great biblical and ancient Near Eastern scholars of the twentieth century. He died in the year two thousand one at the age of ninety two. He taught this, and I think published on it occasionally. I just picked up the ball that that um, he started there. So if you read through Genesis 1, the names of Canaanite deities are intentionally avoided. So the fourth day is the best place to begin. So most of our listeners will hopefully know the biblical text well enough. We'll do it in English, where God creates the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he never uses the words for sun and moon. He never uses the Hebrew word Shemesh. And he doesn't use the Hebrew word Yareach, the words for sun and moon. That's because those are the names of the Canaanite sun and moon deities. So, in the ancient world, there's no difference between what we would call the astronomical body or the natural body and the deity. So, Shemesh or Shamash in Akkadian, Shapshu in Ugaritic, would be both sun, Ra in ancient Egyptian, would be both the sun and the solar deity, and did over the word for moon and so on. So you cannot use the words sun and moon less, and you have to have these circumlocutions, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. You use these circumlocutions to avoid mentioning those names, lest the innocent reader slash listener think that somehow God is responsible for the creation of polytheistic deities. And then you also see this with the creation of the sea. So when in day three, when God separates the, you know, the, the waters below into the dry land and the sea. Uh, the dry land is called Eretz, fine, land, and the sea is called Yamim, seas, plural, because if you said Yam singular, you would then be naming the Canaanite sea god, Yam, whom we know very well, especially from Ugaritic mythology, from the Baal myth, where Yam is one of the opponents to, to the god Baal. So you just avoid these. And then, what I've just said is probably known to many people, but when you get to the seventh day, you have something which is really fascinating. The noun Shabbat is not used on the seventh day of creation, the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. The verb Shabbat is used, that God rested, but the noun Shabbat is not used. It's the seventh day. It's called the seventh day. You'd think that this was such a crucial institution to ancient Israel. This would be the place to mention it, but it's not mentioned there. The word doesn't get mentioned until we get to the book of Exodus. And again, it was Professor Gordon who hypothesized this, who proposed this, and I think he's absolutely correct, that Shabbat is also the name in Hebrew of the planet Saturn, either in the form Shabbat or Shabbatai. And we know the names of the planets, not from the biblical texts always, but at least from post-biblical literature, we get the names of the planets. And if you think just in English for a moment, our own seven day week, uh, the seventh day in English is Saturn's day, uh, which we slur into Saturday. We get that name of course, from Roman mythology where Saturn is one of the great gods and all, and and most of our dames of the days of the week are based on Roman names. So in all of these languages, Saturday is Saturn's day. Exactly like Hebrew Shabbat, right? His name for the planet Saturn, the seventh day Saturday. So, but you don't want to mention it. So, you just avoid it and you refer to it only as the seventh day. So, this is the demythologizing process. This is where language meets, you know, content, right? This is not just a linguistic thing. This is a real important aspect of the creation story in Genesis chapter one. And the biblical authors are going out of their way not to mention these, the names of these polytheistic deities. Whether this affects the dating of the text, which was the second part of your question, I don't think so. I think this would have been an issue throughout the biblical period because the Israelites were the only people worshiping one God. All of their neighbors continued to worship the larger pantheons, Egyptians, Canaanites, Babylonians, everyone. So this was probably an issue throughout. And again, these are very, you know, you can teach Genesis chapter one and the First creation story, such a great little story. You can teach it to six, seven, eight year olds, which we do. But there's a deep sophistication in, in the way the story is written.
0: Yeah, it's and not to go off on too much of a tangent, but it's interesting that the author went to great lengths not to mention the not to include names of Canaanite deities. And you mentioned Shabbat and, and Saturn, but then it seems like you know go forward a 1, thousand, fifteen hundred years, and then you know whenever we get to the Middle Ages and and Kabbalism and stuff, it almost seems like there was a reincorporation of those things like with Saturn and like the Shabbatite Tsevi figure and.
1: Right. Yeah. The, the you yeah, know, the Kabbalah sort of moves in these, you know, mystical planetary, all sorts of things. You're, you're right about that. I, by the way, we should mention, and, and again, for those who don't know other than Shabbat, which of course is the name of the seventh day, Hebrew uh, doesn't have names for the days of the week. You know, until the present day, it's still the first day, the second day, the third day. That's how you say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc. That's true of Hebrew and that's also true of Arabic. That's because the Jews and Arabs come from this tradition of these polytheists in the in the, in the Near East where they you know are surrounded by the people. And so they have an entirely demythologized calendar, as it were, where you don't have names for the days of the week. There are several European languages that do that. One of them is Portuguese. I already listed the Spanish days, but in Portuguese, they actually have that same system of numbering the days of the week, probably going back to the large Jewish and Muslim presence in Iberia, which for whatever reason didn't affect Spanish, but certainly affected Portuguese. These are wonderful little tidbits of language and so much more that I, I, I love teaching my students. To, and I hope that people listening to our podcast are appreciative of, of these things, which we should really think about. And the other you know, the other issue is, of course, when Christianity comes along in, in especially Western Christianity coming out of a Roman Latin, slash Latin background. You know, the names of the days of the week are there. I think some of the early church fathers did wonder about whether they should use these terms. I seem to recall reading something about that. There was some pushback, but they were ensconced in the daily life of everybody. I mean, you know, nobody would have worried about saying Saturn's day after we became a Christian. And by the way, in English, the other days of the week are for Norse gods, right? So we have, you know, Wednesday's name for Wotan and Thursday's name for Thor But, you know, we don't worry about it because, you know, our neighbors are not worshiping,
0: you know, the great gods of the old Norse myths. That we know about. That we know about. On the topic of Arabic, one of the things, one of the many things that um, caught my eye in the book was when you break down the phrase, talking about the the creation of Adam and Eve and why it's always troubled you, the traditional interpretation and translation of it. And you focus on the phrase, ezer kenegdo, and then you break down the, the word ezer. And then you connect it to you and, you know, another trip connected it to, to the Arabic word for virgin. And I, I always love when, when you can do that, when you can figure out what one word may have meant by looking at its corresponding word in, in a related language.
1: It's really fascinating. And I may have brought it to greater scholarly attention, but, you know, there is a, a Jewish tradition that you always have to say something, the shame omro in the name of the one who said it. And in this case, the person who gets credit for this is the remarkable De'ev Ben Chaim, who was professor of Hebrew here at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, but also long-term president of the Academy of the Hebrew Language. And I I love the fact that so many of my teachers lived, not only to be over 90, but to be over 100. In the case of Ben Chaim, I think he was 106 when he passed away a few years ago. I hadn't seen him in, in, in some years. But just remarkable. And when he was a young, spry 90 year old or something like that, he wrote a small article in Hebrew in the journal Shonenu in which he posited that Azer Kenegdo, which is going back to the King James Bible and long before that, actually, Azer is the Hebrew word for help. Uh, so this created uh, the English expression help meet or help mate, Kenegdo, which means something like equal to him or opposite to him or supporting him or something like that. And Ben Chaim, everybody was always uncomfortable with that English expression, even, you know, pre-egalitarian days, the idea that, you know, help meet or help mate of Adam. And Professor Ben Chaim realized that, you know, the Arabic cognate is Azra, uh, which is just a common Arabic word for woman or virgin or etc. And Christian Arabs use it as the epithet for the Virgin Mary. And the phonetics work out perfectly. Ayin, Zion, Raish in Hebrew would be the equivalent of the Ayin, Va, Ra in Arabic. And um, the, the author did not use the common Hebrew word Isha or any of the other Hebrew words that could be used for a woman. I mean, that word also appears in, the, in Genesis chapter two and three. But he decided to pick this term, Ezerkenegdo. Uh, and you know ben chaim paved the way and then i uh, brought it to an english audience both in the book and in an essay i wrote for the Torah.com website to which i can we can direct our listeners and again why did why did the author of genesis chapter 2 use this word well azer konegdo alliterates Gan baiden so if everybody can hear that azer i'm really emphasizing the i in here azer konegdo and Gun the Aden. So it's really a woman or a virgin or however you want to translate the word as his equal, as his opposite. Opposite in the sense of like on stage, you know, so one actor plays opposite another. And that doesn't mean they're contentious with one another, it just means they're, you know, one's opposite on the stage. So it turns out that Eve is not the helpmate to Adam, but rather is his is a woman as his equal or as his opposite. And it changes, you know, 500 years or 1,000 years or however much of biblical exegesis because, oh, wait, she's not the helper. She is his equal. And the alliteration works because the Eden means a garden in Eden. In English, we happen to say the garden of Eden, but in the Hebrew there, it's actually garden in Eden. And the phonetics work up; you scramble the letters of the two phrases of these two two-word phrases. It's it's just a remarkable piece of ling- of literary and linguistic virtuosity that I, these brilliant writers are are, are able to accomplish.
0: And it's interesting too because that if you're not approaching the text from that angle, understanding the wordplay that that's being deployed there in many other instances, then you would completely misunderstand or mistranslate the text.
1: Uh, the, and the bottom line, just to repeat, so we, what, you know in English we have homonyms, right? So all languages have homonyms. So Ezer is a homonym. In Hebrew it means help, but it also means some type of a woman. Okay. Woman, female, lady, virgin. We've run out of good English words after a while and people have always just read it as the, as the former, but in this case it really is the latter.
0: On the topic of confused language that you, you cover in the text, it's where the author would deliberately deploy confused language to convey an emotion. It's almost, you know, like from our perspective as modern readers or as, modern movie watchers that makes sense in our context when people are frantic or in a modern novel, if it's written, if you're trying to, to, you know, convey stress or tension that it's written that way. And that makes sense to us. But unless you understand that the biblical authors were, were doing that as well, also, you would just be confused as like, why is this, this just seems to be like written poorly until, until you point that out and, and it, it makes sense. And there are two examples that stood out to me and they both involve the, the character of Saul. The first was the the girl's excitement meeting Saul. And the second was Saul dressing David in his armor. I'd love if you can elaborate on this.
1: Oh, Those, those are really, you know, really, really both wonderful. So in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul is out looking for his, you know, his the family's lost donkeys with his assistant. And they come to the city of Ramah, which is where the prophet Samuel is. And they figure, oh, he'll be able to help us because, you know, he's a seer. He's a prophet. He'll help us find our donkeys. And these women are coming out of the city to draw water from the, from the well and, you know, 22 words or something like that, you know, and it's just, it's almost babble. It's a cacophony of sounds. And it's Martin Buber, by the way, the great Martin Buber, whom we usually identify as a 20th century philosopher, uh, is the one who did some great work in biblical studies as well, including translating the entire Bible into German with his own unique style. And Abub was the first one to point this out. Uh, every, you know, this is just all the young women and you can hear the excitement. Here's this, you know, beautiful, handsome young man who, according to the biblical text, you know, stands, you know, a head taller than everybody else. They, they see him coming. And so they're just like all their words are spilling on top of one another. And you're right. If you watch a movie or a television show, we can do this. You can have all the girls talking at once. And a, bit, and a written text it's a little harder to do that. But that's what the biblical text is doing. And right, the other story is in 1 Samuel 17, very, very famous story of David and Goliath. And, you know, David steps forward and says, I'll go out there and slay Goliath. And everybody's sort of in disbelief, including Saul. But Saul dresses David with his armor. He says, you can't go out there by yourself against the great Philistine champion. And he dresses him in his armor. And when he does so, the text has several little Items there which show us that Saul can't even get that right. I mean, one of the portrayals of Saul in the book of Samuel is to try to show his failing as a king. And of course, it's a little bit of a contrast to highlight how wonderful King David will be. But it starts out, it's chapter 17, 1 Samuel 17, verse 38. And, you know, it starts out perfectly fine by Elbe Shaul et David Madav, and Saul dressed David with his. Armor, or whatever the word madav means in that case. I mean, modern Hebrew comes to mean something like uniform. And then it says the natan kovan al rosho, and it uses the wrong verbal tense. It should say and he put the helmet of bronze, or the bronze helmet, on his head. But it's it's it's, it's the wrong verbal tense there. And then it goes on oto shiryon, and which is grammatically fine. And he dressed him with his armor. So there's two things going on here. One is the wrong grammatical form uh, to show you that Saul's doing it all wrong. <laughs> okay, again, for, if you know biblical Hebrew well, it should be va'itane, but instead it's binatan, which you know in theory can mean and in the past tense. And he put literally gave, and he put the uh, helmet on on his head. But the the syntax there is all wrong, and a number of biblical scholars. You know, pointed this out. I, I quoted one of them, and two. You know, who stated, "quote that this form is quote unquote syntactically impossible." And the typical approach is to amend the verse, but it should stand as it is. And then the other point here is that first he puts his, according to the ordering here, first Saul dresses David in the helmet, and then he dresses him in the armor. Uh, in the history of armoring a, a fighter. The armor is put on and and then including all the greaves and everything else. And the last thing donned is the helmet. And how do we know that? Well, we know that from Homer because Homer has a few, uh, several armor dressing scenes. We know it from the middle ages, from poems, uh, medieval poems. And we even have treatises written in the middle ages on how to dress somebody with armor. And the helmet is always put on last. Saul can't even get that right. He can't even dress another man correctly. And so you have the wrong ordering of things. You have the wrong verbal form. And this is part of this idea of confused language. Do not amend the text. Let it stand as it is. This is just one more instance of the brilliance of these ancient Israelite literati.
0: And and the the brilliance and skill of which they, they write those stories is, is one thing. But aside, I, I think the way they portray Saul in general is just... He's probably my favorite, one of my favorite characters and just this tragic hero. And he starts off being awesome. And then he has this downfall, but you still like him and you still, you know, can understand what he's going through. And just the way they they portray his journey is, I think, very underrated.
1: Yeah, no, it's fun. And I should tell you a little impromptu comment here. Would you believe that just today, as we record this in October of 2022, just today, I finished my commentary on the Book of First Samuel. That's my current project. We're discussing how the Bible is written, written in twenty nineteen. But my next book is commentary on First Samuel. They allow me the plug it for the Jewish Publication Society uh, Bible Commentary series. It's a very large volume. It may be printed in two volumes, and that's even before I get to Second Samuel, which of course will be my next project. And yes, just today I put the final approval on a 180,000 word (laughs) book, and it'll it'll take another year and a half probably to go through the process of formatting and everything else. Because if you know the JPS series, it's got the Hebrew text, English translation, the commentary, excursus material. It's not an easy thing to to print. So it'll take some stylists and proofreaders and so on, but we're on our way. Uh, So yes, Saul is very much on my mind and of course tragically dies in the very last chapter of First Samuel chapter 31 on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa, along with three of his sons, including Jonathan. So this is very much on my mind. I agree with you, uh, Alex. It, it, it's a remarkable character and portrayal of character. One of the issues is when we read the book of Samuel, all eyes are on David, but you got to keep your attention on Saul, obviously, in, in the book of First Samuel. it is a, He's just a the pathos is is palpable on 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 the page.
0: I want to move on to, to some more wordplay examples, and, and we could start to wrap up. So, there's a couple of examples that you cite where, like we talked about, where the the author or authors is using a single word that carries a, a double meaning, um, and it also is is used depending on the context of the story. And we talked about Job before, and how the author is purposely using difficult language to portray a, a very difficult situation, a tragic situation. So I'd love if you can break down uh, this example. of uh, The first one is Job 7-6. I, I don't know that off the top of my head. I wrote it down from, from your book. But the the English translation is, he said, my days pass faster than a weaver's shuttle and come to end without hope.
1: Yeah, it's a brilliant one. Again, I'm not the first person to to, to show this. And I think the if he, he might have been the first person to identify it, I, 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 and I, he'll, he will get credit for it, although I think somebody else, even prior to him, as I mentioned, my teacher, uh, Cyrus Gordon, in this case, it was my student, Scott Nagel at the University of Washington, who wrote his dissertation under me on, on these kinds of word plays in in the book of Job. So the last word there is Tikva, And again, if you know Hebrew well, you know, people, everybody knows Tikva means hope. It's the uh, national anthem of the modern state of Israel, Hatikva, meaning the hope, talking about the Zionist vision and the hope for an independent Jewish uh, country in this land. So, you know, the English is, my days pass faster than a weaver's shuttle. And we're doing this on audio, so nobody can see what I'm doing with my finger. But uh, the weaver's shuttle is the little piece of the when you're a weaver that, you know, this goes back and forth so fast, or up and down, back and forth. I'm not a weaver, so I don't really remember the, the direction of those things. But you, we've all heard a loom and that stuff, that noise, that's the shuttle going so fast, right? My days pass faster than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without, and then this word tikva, without hope, right? And it's speaking to the human condition, right? And this is Job, right? Our days pass so quickly. And, you know, they come to an end without hope, all the things that we had hoped to do in our lives and that it's all over too fast. But is also means thread in Hebrew. It's a rare word that also means thread. And it's exactly what happens when you're weaving, you know, you're going fast, 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 fast action with the weaver shuttle, and then you, your spool runs out. You gotta stop, you gotta fix it, you gotta put a new spool on, you know, the, anyone who sews or who, or who weaves will, will know this. You know, it's 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 an absolutely brilliant wordplay there. What we call this polysemy, where a single word can mean two things, and you don't have to choose between the two meanings. It doesn't mean hope or thread; it means hope and thread. And you know, this is once again uh, absolute brilliance. And if people want to know where we know the word thread from, you know, turn to a familiar story in Joshua chapter two, Rahab. The heroine of that story ties a crimson thread in her window to identify her house so that when the Israelites return in chapter six, destroy Jericho, they will protect her and the soldiers will know what her house is. So that is the crimson thread. And we know it from Joshua 2 and some other biblical passages. So we know the word hope and we know the word thread and we bring them both together when we read Job chapter seven, verse six. All right. Our days pass faster than a weaver's shuttle. And they come to an end without hope slash thread. You know, just absolutely brilliant literary style once again.
0: And the the last one that um, we can wrap up with is a shout out to my parents who uh, read the uh, Woman of Valor prayer on on Shabbat. But you focus on uh, the interpretation of of the word Sophia. I'd love if you can break that down for us.
1: Right. So the word Sophia... Uh, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 27. So Proverbs 31, starting, I think it's in verse 10 through the end, is a poem which praises the woman, whom we call the woman of valor in Hebrew, Eshet Chael. And it's an alphabetic acrostic going from Aleph, the first letter, to Toph, 22 verses, the last verse. When the poet gets to the Tsadi verse, he states, she oversees the ways of her house. And the bread of laziness she does not eat. But let's stay with the first line. You know, she oversees the ways of her house. Now, the Hebrew verb form there, normal verb form, would be tsofa. Sofa means he sees. tsofa means she sees. Again, if you know Hebrew well, the topography of Jerusalem, harhat Sophim, is the mount of seeing or the mount of watching or the mount of overseeing. It's a high mountain that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. Greek slash English translation is Mount Scopus. Scopus meaning to see in Greek, right? embedded into English words like microscope and telescope or to scope something out. That's Mount Scopus. That's Hebrew harat sophim. So this is the verb. And for a single woman, I don't mean single, unmarried. For a woman in the feminine singular, it would be sofah. She oversees Halichot Beta, she oversees the ways of her house. But the poet doesn't use the form Sofa, he uses the unusual form Sophia. She oversees, which we can explain, it's a more archaic form, we can explain it grammatically. Sophia, Halichot Beta, she oversees the ways of her house. What's remarkable here, and again, we'll say it, Bashem Monroe, the scholar who pointed this out was Al Walters of Redeemer College in Ontario. He pointed out that Sophia there is actually also the Greek word for wisdom. And again, you don't have to know a lot of Greek to know Sophia, Sophia means wisdom. It's the Greek embodiment of lady wisdom. Sophia becomes a personal name, including in English, Sophie or Sophia. It's a double entendre there, right? She watches over the ways of her house, but also it's a bilingual pun that ways of our house are wisdom. This doesn't mean that every ancient Israelite would have known Greek. Obviously, they did not. It doesn't mean that everybody would have got this. But the poet uses this, and he's assuming that sufficient numbers of his listeners will know that this word evokes the Greek word for wisdom. No different than we're speaking modern English, and if I use the word Sophia, I'm sure that a good number of our listeners will know that this is the greek word for wisdom no different than we throw out all sorts of greek and latin words and we use them all the time it doesn't mean we know greek and latin but you know we know eros means love or you know whatever we just know these things because they're part of our language they're not common but they come into our language similarly a sufficient number of ancient israelites would have known the wisdom tradition from ancient greece and would have known the word sophia and our poet is able to employ it. So yes, traditionally, Jews recite this on Friday evening at the Shabbat table. And hopefully anyone who has that custom will now think about that Sophia Halichot Beta uh, the next time the family gathers and those words are heard on a Friday night.
0: Well, thanks so much for, for coming on again. It's always a pleasure to, to speak with you and appreciate you making time in your busy schedule.
1: It's always such a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be part of the the podcast series.
0: I hope you have a great time in Israel and great time at Bar Ilan. I look forward to, to staying in touch. Absolutely. Be well. Take care. Cultive.